think empathy is such an underrated um, attribute in our culture, and it's really incredibly courageous. It's like this bold, ferocious, courageous act to empathize with someone who's different from yourself and to use your imagination to sit in their shoes and to, to you know, include them in your world vision as a result of that. I think it's a huge and necessary thing. And that's a huge part of this film. Welcome back to Nothing Shines Like Dirt, episode 44. I'm Elise Siebert. And I'm Leslie Shannon. Today, we are speaking with actor-director Catherine Eaton. We discuss the beauty in silence, Ryan Murphy's Half Foundation, and Cinderella stories do exist. I would be terrified for anyone to sort of analyze my life that way. I have no idea what it would say about me. Oh my gosh, I don't want anyone to do well, that. Well, we kind you know? of do that as filmmakers, though. We're analyzing people and why they do what they do and putting them in these uh, circumstances, heightened circumstances, to kind of see how that unfolds. So. Right, <laughs> because that's one of the things that I love about um, creating and trying to encompass human beings in storytelling mm. is you. there are always those things, even people who are very, you, you think you have them figured out, right? They always have those couple of things about themselves that surprise you, whatever they are. And I, that's one of my things as an actor and as a storyteller, I love to find what those things are because I think that makes it more real. Yeah. I mean, we're all contradictions in the end, I think. You know what I mean? It's there. It's, it's the, it's the, sort of both at the same time theory as opposed to the like either this or this or this is who that person is. These are the things that I can lay out. I remember when I was watching years and years ago when I first sort of discovered the power of what it would mean, what film was over theater was watching uh, Juliette Binoche in Blue. And her performance is unbelievable in that, but it's this collection of moments that almost don't make sense together. And then there was something in, and, and it's and it's both her performance, which is magnetic, but it's also there was something in the way that it was put together, the way those choices were made about whatever those moments were and how they were cut together that creates this incredible life force that seems undefinable in a way that I hadn't seen before. And I thought, that's the difference. And then I saw, you like some years later, I saw... Um, Kate Blanchett play Hedda Gobbler at BAM. And she was on, you know, she's amazing, amazing. She's amazing. She's just incredible. She's just incredible. I just, <laughs> I just, I would love to just sit down and have coffee with her one day and just be like, just talk, just tell me everything you're thinking. How do you live? Tell me. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It, just, or just any, just talk to me, just look and talk to me, like look yeah. at me and talk to me. And like then that'll be a bucket list thing crossed off. But she, she was playing Hedda Gobbler and she, um, she was so facile as an actor, but she made so many, and it's a but and an and, but she made so many choices. She was so mercurial that it almost became hard. She was easy to follow. You understood sort of, you were riveted by her and compelled by her, and she was very much, it was all true. Every moment was true. But there was such, this, such an array of choices in any given moment that you almost lost the production because the story wasn't quite carved out. It was almost like she was everywhere at once because she's so able that, you know, I thought about the difference between watching that on stage and watching it on film because there was something to me that was comparable about those two performances. It was really interesting sort of, you know, uh, thinking about it because prior to that I had always loved theater. You know, theater was my first love and I could, I would never ha even have a discussion. I loved movies, of course, but I would never even have a discussion that film was better than theater. And I don't think it is better. Of course, they're very different. But but I loved that. I was like, oh, there's the power to take this amazing, these two amazing, yeah. um, diverse performances that are so rich and full of complexity and full of contradiction even. And in film, to be able to control that and kind of curate that. And in theater to an extent directors can curate, but they're also, once they step out, it's what's up on stage. So it was interesting. To well, it, you also in theater, you can't tell the audience to look exactly here at this moment. You know, that for me, I think that's something about film is you can really kind of shape what you want the audience to know and not know and where you want them to look and go, which is what I think you're, you're nailing 
on the head right there. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, most theater directors would say you can direct <laughs> where the, I don't direct theaters. So I don't know. I, and I think they're um, amazing, but uh, it's not anything I aspire to do at this point. But, um, but I think they would say that you can direct I don't the know. attention. I always, I always look like, I always, you look somewhere else. I look somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. So you're that like, person. I like to see what, like, <laughs> I like, I'm, I, yeah, it's me. I'm ruining it for them. But I like to see like what, what is that character doing in the back or even, well, totally. I mean more even for like musicals. I love watching the people in the back and like, what are they doing and how are they reacting to, I don't know. I'm fascinated by it. Mm. Like the, the collaboration of everyone on stage and I don't know. So. I, if I go to a, a show more than once, then I spend the whole time, the second time just watching, watching. the actor that's not the focus or, you know, just to see people filling these lives moment to moment. Cause we've all played those parts as, you know, three actors in a room, you know, you Absolutely. have at some, <laughs> at some point played that part where you're not the focus of attention for most of the play yeah. and watching people sort of keep those lives full. And, you know, in some cases re- completely steal the show or steal the scene is just a really beautiful thing to watch. There's something really joyful in it. Cause it's like that life force is so, I'm sure, the actor that is supposed to be the center of attention isn't so well, overjoyed. Yeah, yeah. But there's something that's so kind of um, bold, you know, there's something, if you can live so fully without the action and without the dialogue that people are still drawn to you and still have to watch you, it's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's how, like when I was in, um, when I was even in, in high school, that was how our director, she talked to us was, um, I went to performing arts high school in Memphis, Tennessee. And, um, our director, she was <laughs> lovely. And she talked to the people who were in, cause I remember when I first got there, the first musical that we did was, um, little shop of horrors. Mm. And so all of the people who were the in the first scene, because musicals are are notorious for having a bajillion people on stage at once, and because it's a high school um, musical, they try to fit as many people as they can. You know, anyone who auditioned, they want to give them some things um, so that they can sink their teeth into it. And I remember her having this really long conversation with uh, one of the one of the homeless people, one of the bums that like sing a couple of the parts, um, you go downtown, the like little, little section. And, uh, I remember her, she's like, build your whole life. Who is this person? Why are they here? Why aren't they in this box? And you know, what is their motivation? And she like, would, I watched her sit and have these conversations with them. And, and that's what it is, is just making it real for yourself. And sometimes that's more fun than playing the lead role. Not that I don't like doing that too, but <laughs> There's just a lot more. I think when you're in the when you're in the center of the action, there's just a lot more information that's given to you. So there's a lot more that can ignite in your imagination as a result of that. As often as not, if a script is great, then every even the little parts are. We tried really hard in our with the feature film uh, with our film, The Sounding, to because I'm an actor, and because Brian, who co-wrote it with me, loves actors. We tried to make sure that even the little, the small one-line or two-line roles, that there was something really clear and defining about them so that it would give the actors a handhold in terms of doing just that, actually having an entire character behind it. And then, of course, you know, you, if you use great actors, they're going to do that work even if it's even if it's badly written. But it really does ha- help, you know... I, they're amazing. This is some of the small roles in the film are some of my favorite things to watch now. You know, of course I've seen it. <laughs> I, I <laughs> a bajillion times. <laughs> I mean, I, with the editing and now through the oh festival gosh. process, I can't yeah. even say how many times. It's so, so, so many hours of my life I've been watching that movie. But I still sit through it. Every single screening we have, even though we've, you know, we've been, I think we just went to our 20th festival. I still sit through every screening, like the entire screening, A, because the audience is new and different and they're from different parts of the country and they have, and the world and they have different responses and they're, you know, uh, they've had a different background. So they bring that background to the film and that's really interesting for me to see. And then also, it's my first feature, so I think I'm probably, I will never get tired of watching an audience watch it, you know, but then also watching those actors do, you know, now, obviously through the whole, every single thing that's in any frame of that film, I mean, down to single frames of that film was so hard won. I think that's true for all filmmaking. I say this sometimes in Q&As, but, you know, if, if it earned its place on screen in 
nine out of 10 films, then it has been, you know, slaved over. It's been loved and sweated into existence because that's the way that it works, right? We have, you know, time constraints, money constraints, talent constraints, all those kind of things come in. And so you fight for every second that's on that screen. But, but still, I'm still, I still feel like I'm discovering new little layers to some of the other, the smaller, the supporting characters performances. And I just love those actors so much. Every time I watch it, my heart swells, you know, because mm, I think you brought lovely. so much to it. Yeah. That's such a great feeling to have after your first feature. You So when you said this is your first feature, is this the first feature you've written or directed or both? Yeah, it's my, I had done features as an actor, but it's my first feature. I co-wrote it and directed it and, and it, yeah, so it's my first, and, and I had never produced a feature before. So, and I, I had producers on this. I wasn't a producer, but I, you know, was in the producing meetings and all that kind of thing. So, so this was my first across the board for those positions, which was incredible. And it started off as a short a few years earlier, or no? But people do think okay. that, which makes okay. complete sense. So what happened is um, the so this is the great story about how the background of how it happened. Basically, uh, it was it started as a play. It was a one woman show. The last just the last ten minutes of the film, which is this kind of um, showdown between the two main characters, started as a play. It was a one woman show, and the other character was just a voiceover for this one woman show. And I toured it everywhere. I did it um, at Carnegie Hall, and I did it at Lincoln Center, and I went across Europe with it. And we played in you know some large theaters, and then we played in you know town halls, and sometimes in churches to like three people and a dog. <laughs> And like those people were recruited from the graveyard where they were paying their respects next door, literally. Like, oh my gosh. I mean, sometimes we would just walk around the town going, please come see the show because there are these tiny, tiny little, you know, tiny villages in Ireland. So we did it all over the place. And then um, I came back to New York and I was running this series of artist salons in the Roger Smith Hotel on 47th and Lexington. And uh, they were kind of an opportunity for me to just curate a a group of artists that would come together. And there was a um, a chef who would bring his or her food as their art and a winemaker who brought their wine as their art. And they got to talk about it artistically and creatively around how they dedicated that time, you know, dedicated their kind of what, what, what made them dedicate certain elements into those dishes or into that bottle. And then there were, you know, everything from musicians to puppeteers to poets to whatever it was. And nobody paid. That was the thing was it was meant to be just a creative space. And no one from the hotel was allowed to go. So it was kind of amazing that they gave me this space. The Roger Smith Hotel is amazing. They're owned by a sculptor uh, named James Knowles, who's incredible. And um, they had an artistic director at the time because it's owned by a sculptor who curated all the art on the walls and curated the performance art spaces. And he and I, uh, Matt Semler, who's incredible, um, ran this, this series of salons together and he saw pieces of my one woman show while I was workshopping it in there. And he said, you have to do this in our storefront space. And the sound, you know, you perform down on 47th and Lexington and the sound gets piped out onto the street and thousands and thousands of people walk by every four hours and the, the play took place in the observation room of a psychiatric hospital. So I said no for like a year because I was just like, it's a really difficult play and you have to sit down in a dark theater and really want to hear the story and um, you need to buy a ticket and demand that you get your money's worth. Like that's what I felt the audience needed in order to follow this play. And he just said, why are you in New York if you're not going to do brave, crazy, strange things? And he was totally right. So I brought my designer down and we reconceived the play and it was this hyper white, super modern observation room that glowed with tons of fluorescent lighting and inside was a woman in a gown scrawled in Shakespeare and it became this kind of cult hit. And the sidewalks became fire hazards. They got so packed, the police had to come. Wow. The cars were stopping at the intersection and not moving on. <laughs> there were pizza delivery guys and their pizzas were getting cold and stockbrokers <laughs> talking on their phones and homeless people would bang on the glass and say, I'll get you out. It was amazing. And every night this man came in a tuxedo and I thought that he was a caterer because I didn't know anybody who wore a tuxedo every night, but he always had a peach colored financial times under his arm. So the guys in the back jokingly called him the financier and they said, oh, did the financier come tonight? And the last night of the play, he waited for me afterwards and said, I want to turn your play into a feature film. 
So I know it's amazing. It's this total Cinderella Like Cinderella, story. yeah. It yeah. really is. It's amazing. Any filmmaker, whoever hears this is just like, that's never happens. And it's completely ridiculous. <laughs> no, it does. It, it does well, happen. It does. And it did. <laughs> and it's an only in New York kind of story yeah. also. But the result was we had the funding and, you know, over time, of course, we then wrote the script and then, you know, he brought in other investors, but we had the funding for the feature. And then I decided to direct a short film to see if I wanted to direct the feature, if I could direct and act at the same time, if I had an aesthetic, if I liked directing, to work on who I would want on my creative team, um, to explore what the film should look like and what that meant for me, and to understand things like lenses and cameras and you know shot listing. And so I bought a lot of books and I read a lot and I asked a lot of questions and then I shot the short film and it was the most creatively rewarding experience of my life. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. How long was the short then? Was it? Um, the short is, what is it, like eight minutes? Okay. No, 12 minutes. Maybe it's longer than that. We never released it. Okay. We went through the full process and finished it. We didn't get music rights, but we finished it otherwise. And uh, and because it was the same conceit as the feature, we just said we wouldn't release the short. We would just go right into the feature. And also there was time issues around the cast and people that I wanted to use in the feature and being able to shoot, so... That's incredible. That's really cool. That and is, and how rich the script. I mean, I think coming from like a one woman show to then a short and then, you know, to a feature and talking about bringing all those side characters on and making their lives really rich, like mm. just sometimes allowing that time and not being impatient and like mm. letting it kind of grow. That's a beautiful Beautiful story. Thanks. I love that. Thank you. I love that so much. Yeah, so you've lived you've lived with this character for, for a little while, huh? Yeah, which was incredibly helpful as an actor-director to have had that time on stage with the character. It was only in one, you know, one part of her life, and the film obviously covers a lot more terrain and is a sort of much more what, you know, what they like to say is opened up, but a much bigger version. It's much... It's a longer period of time. The stage play was one day, you know, and the film covers multiple months and the process of the character from going from silent to taking on this acquired language. And um, so, but having had that experience, I really knew who she was. So even when we went into the writing process, actually, to expand it into a feature film, it was a really great um, compass and sort of barometer for the writing of that of the screenplay initially as well, because I had a really strong sense of where she came from, who she was. There were things that we changed to make it more cinematic and to condense time. Um, but those were conscious choices as opposed to sort of starting with a more or less blank slate or, you know, and just kind of going, I think it's one, you know, they say there's that wonderful adage where they say, you know, you put an artist on the beach and you have an artist on the beach, but you put an artist in a sandbox and you get a sandcastle about constraints and limitation. Yes. And I think yeah. it's, I find it to be very true. Yep. Yep. I totally agree. I feel like creativity is born out of those restraints and restrictions and boundaries. And you, you have to be creative to get from A to B because right. you have something in the way versus, yeah, you know. exactly. So then you have to use your imagination to figure it out. And there, and it's really there, it's, you know, the constraints are actually points of inspiration ultimately, I think. So, um, so that was really helpful. And then when I was preparing, I knew that I wouldn't have a lot of time to focus on myself as an actor on set. I wanted, obviously, I, the work was important to me. The more important thing for me in the, in the project was directing the film, which included my performance as well. But it was the direction of the film at that point because that was what was new and that was my learning curve and, you know, sort of the new adventure in my life and the new exploration, which I loved. But... um but I knew I wouldn't have a lot of time. So it was really helpful to have had that history because it was already in my body. And then before we went to shoot, because the character is silent, she, um, she's she been silent most of her life. And uh, um, prior to choosing this acquired language that she chooses in the film, I went to an island off the coast of Maine that was similar to the location that we ended up shooting in and that the screenplay was based on. And I didn't speak. I camped out for four weeks and I interacted with the locals and I didn't write and I only used kind of like a gestural language and I didn't explain why I was there because I wanted to see if there was any kind of veracity in the ability for somebody to actually live a life this way. Could you actually live silently and have a functional life in, in what kind of community could you do that? And how would people behave to you? And, um, 
And then also I wanted to make sure I understood as an actor why she did it, what her, what inside of her, what she felt her choices were. Because my head was telling me what they were, right? Intellectually as a writer, I created those reasons, but I needed to feel it. I needed to feel it in my body. And it was such an amazing experience. It was totally like, I get Buddhism now and like silent <laughs> retreats. I really do. You just deepen. Yeah. It's a real, like all the peripheral noise goes away. I found that, you know, we ended up using really shallow depth of field in the film. So um, meaning that the subject was the single thing that was in focus in any given frame and that everything else is slightly out of focus or or more extensively out of focus. And um, part of the reason that that was the the reason, the thing that inspired that initially was because for Liv, for this character who is silent, the only, she only focuses on what's in front of her. There's no distraction. So the, the only thing that is in focus is literally the person she's talking to or the seagull she's looking at, or you know what I mean? There's a real kind of stillness and quiet and buffer that happens when you stop talking, which isn't a great advertisement for a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's an advertisement or for digging deep into the work and like going away for four weeks. And, you know, sometimes I feel like we get our to-do list and no, I can't, I can't take time away from everything else. And like, to be able to take time away and experience that. That's wonderful. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. It was really incredible. People were just, uh, you know, there were sort of two responses either. And and the cool thing is the lobstermen and the fishermen of the island were su- super embraced my condition and respected my privacy about it. They never pushed for an answer. They welcomed me. Like they would, they would um, go to the sort of one little general store on this island and have lunch at like 10 a.m. because they'd been up since like 4 a.m., And I would sit with them and they would invite me into their circle and then just not, you know, they would nod at me and I would nod at them. And, and there was never any pressure to speak. They just included me in the community. Whereas if there were tourists that came to the Island, because the Island also has a lot of tourism in the summer, when the tourists came, one of two things happened. They either, um, fully sort of like, uh, you know, a, they needed, they needed a reason why is it? That's you, what I was going to ask. Like, were people like, why can't you yeah, talk? They, and I would sort of make a gesture that showed them that I couldn't speak. Yeah. And then they'd be like, oh, are you deaf? Are you mute? Like really strange kind of wrong combinations. Cool. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I understand that instinct to put a label on something, to understand it and have it not be scary. And sometimes when they couldn't get that, they would just flee. Or And then other times they would tell me their deepest, darkest secrets within like 15 minutes. It was incredible. Once I was hiking up this really difficult uh, hiking trail, and I knew this trail quite well because I had been to this island before, but as a speaking person, and um, I was hiking up it, and there was I passed a sort of mother and daughter, and they uh, they said, "Oh, you know, our my dad is up ahead, and he's he's has a real vertigo, a real fear of heights, which he should not have been on this trail. It's a very very steep trail, rungs and ladders kind of thing." And and they said he has a real fear of heights. Just go around him. He just has to take his time. And so I sort of nodded and continued on my way. And I came across this man who was like, bare, had his face buried in this corner of these two rocks, like shaking. <sighs> and I didn't know what to do because A, the path was right there. There was no, I had to climb up where he was holding on. And B, he was clearly in a crisis. So I put my hand on his shoulder and I think he thought that I was his his wife or his daughter. And he said, just give me a minute. Just give me a minute. I just need a minute. I just need to breathe. Just give me a minute. And I just kind of, you know, held it there for a while. And then after like two or three minutes, he looked over and he said, Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't, I thought it was, you should just go ahead of me. Do you know how much longer it is? Like he was stuttering and he was pale and he was clammy. And this is a, you know, what looked to be like probably a fairly well to do normally, probably confident, you know, uh, male member of society. And, and I showed him that I didn't speak, you know, I made this sort of gesture to show him that I didn't speak. And he just started sobbing and then said, would you hike behind me so you can catch me if I fall? He was probably six feet tall and I would never have been able to catch him. We both would have gone down. (laughs) Just the idea that he thought that I could catch him was sort of, you know, both ennobling and a little scary at the same time. But he said, will you hike behind me? And and of course I nodded. And so we sort of like slowly did this kind of crab walk up these rungs and ladders with me, like basically enveloping him, 
you know, just sort of like right where he could see my hands, you know, not touching him, but just sort of right behind him, slowly, slowly, slowly to the top. And at the top, he and his wife and his daughter just thanked me profusely. They never asked me why I couldn't speak. And then flash forward two days later, I bump into them on a path in the village and he said, oh my God, it's my angel. He said he literally, when he first, when we first interacted, he didn't think I was real. He thought he may have fallen to his death and that I was just this, what he called this pretty angel. You have, an, you have another film to make. <laughs> this yeah. experience. But that's what yeah. happens when you're yeah. silent. It was an amazing, really incredible, like I don't think that had I been a speaking human being, I don't think this man would have had the ability to be vulnerable or to ask for what he needed to be able to get up the, the hill in a way that was, you know, that made him feel safe. So it was just fascinating, really fascinating experience. And, and that informed, I mean, as an actor creating this character, that informed so much. It was huge. So yeah. much. It was totally huge. Did you have any moments where you like almost talked and like caught yourself? Like I yeah. feel, I feel like I'd be like, oh. <laughs> I did in the beginning. If I tripped, I, I would often like, I was alone initially. So if I tripped, I did some, sometimes something would come out of my mouth and then I would sort of go, okay, just, you know, reset. <laughs> um, and then I never spoke to another person though. Um, but I did feel a lot of impulse, especially when people would ask for directions or something. And I felt like, oh, this is a very selfish choice actually, because I can't help you, but I know how to help you. And then I sort of realized that when you're, that for me, and for this character in these circumstances, there was something about functioning at a different level of communication that was about something else. You know, it wasn't about facilitating the logistics of someone's day necessarily. It was more about being present with them, I guess is what I would say. Wow. That's really cool. How did you like directing? Like that learning experience and coming from theater, not only theater, but being an actor into directing a feature film. It was amazing. Yeah. It's such a, every, we should all do it. <laughs> I, I really do. Okay. I, think, I, I mean it. I do. I think actors are wonderful directors, if I do say so myself. I don't mean specifically about my work, but I think we're seeing more and more of it. And there's a reason, and it's because we've physically versed ourselves in storytelling and in being present in and immediate in a story. And so all it is is an amplification of that. Of course, there's other things, right? You do have to understand technically, and depending on how visual you are, because not every film director you know, some film directors are more hands-on with regard to shot listing and lighting and the aesthetics of a film. And some directors are more hands-on with regard to actors and some directors encompass both. And I, to my delight, found that I knew I was going to love working with the actors and that I love actors and I love human storytelling, right? Using human beings to tell stories. I found that I was really, really visual and that was exciting for me. I really loved working with the camera and working with the, my wonderful DP, David Cruda and, um, the like brilliant, we, I, we had an incredible crew and I was always there on set during lighting. I, you know, David and I worked incredibly closely on the shot list. Um, together we pulled loads, we did rip reels together and pulled loads of reference images and reference videos. Those were things that I didn't know that I would feel, but I did, um, so of course there's things you have to augment, you know, this, the natural storytelling of using yourself as your material has to expand. There's a lot more involved. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a different skill set. but I do, I, I do feel like actors make great storytellers. My, um, uh, partner in life and in work often, Brian Delaney, who co-wrote the script for the feature with me and who is a writer full time and is wonderful. Um, he often says actors make great writers, because we understand the internal workings of characters, because we can imagine whole characters from one action. So we make them do one thing and then we um, extrapolate from that the many, many other parts of their life. And so it becomes easy to weave them together because we understand how to um, increase conflict and increase stakes and carve out a, a, pa a path for a character, an arc. He said he thinks they make great writers, and I really think that that extends also to directing. So it's so fun. Well, you're also, as an actor, analyzing script after script after script, and I think it becomes a part of you. I found that as I started writing. I was like, oh, I understand the way this has to be structured mm. to, to be able to tell the story, yeah. you know, yeah, from yeah. analyzing <laughs> so many scripts in my work. So, yeah. yeah, that's awesome. That's so beautiful. Oh, there's so many great things about this film. Oh, yeah. thanks. And um, how many 
do you have upcoming screenings for film festivals coming up or we, do, are you kinda... we don't have anything we can say okay. yet, but we right, do. We'll keep, yeah. We'll and we're going to start to sort of segue out of festivals in the next couple of months and then move into, um, distribution, but we're, but yeah, there's, there's, we're still on the festival circuit for a little while longer. You guys have won some great awards, yeah. audience oh, choice yeah. awards, and it's been really amazing. Wonderful. Actually, the festival circuit is incredible. It's been an incredible experience for us. And I really, um, advocate it for filmmakers. If you, you know, it depends on your circumstances and your funding and things like that, but the festivals have been so supportive and the audiences, I mean, I had no, I didn't know what this, we believed that it had a certain audience and, you know, that it would have a life. And we did, we did test audiences and things like that. So we knew it, that, that the sounding was going to have some resonance with people. And of course we believed in it, but then you start to bring it around to parts of the country that are so different from you, you know, very, very conservative or very, very liberal or, you know, very, um, uh, you know, extremely, uh, college educated or extremely working class and see how the film plays in these different regions because it's such a huge country um it's really rewarding to see how people receive this story that was just in your imagination and now it's light and sound on a wall you know what I mean so it's been incredible and then we had we have had the benefit of really great um response from juries and audiences and that gives you the energy to just keep going and you know f gets me up earlier every morning to work on my next project because of that so does it feel um Audience-wise, sitting down and watching something that you're in, that um, that you're getting to experience with an audience, how similar is that to when you're acting on stage? Because that's something I've always kind of been curious about. Because, I mean, I don't know if I've ever really sat down and, and been with a group of people watching something I've been in um, as an actor. And then, because that's the one thing about film that is, because I love theater. I started with theater. And... Uh, that's the one thing with film that I miss mm. is that audience connection and how they're able to feed you. And so even though it's not feeding the performance, is it similar in any way to when you're on stage? It's, it, it's, I wouldn't say the actual watching of the film with them is necessarily similar, or at least not for me at this point. When I watch the film with them, it's much more as a director. It's very, I don't even see myself. In fact, I frequently have forgotten that I'm in the film <laughs> or, or that like a normal director isn't in their film, not normal, but that the majority of directors aren't in their films. I forget about that stuff. And then we'll walk down the street and people will recognize me from the film and say, I loved your movie. And I realize that other directors don't necessarily have the benefit of that because they aren't recognizable yeah. per se, you know, if they're, unless they're a well-known director. Um, but what is like that is after the film is over and people come up to you and they wait in line to talk to you and they write fan poetry and fan fiction and they email these things to you in like beautiful paintings of your character or a still from the film. And it's, and our film is still just in festivals, you know, it hasn't had a huge release yet. It hasn't had, like it hasn't met, it's probably met, I don't know, 5% of its audience, maybe. I mean, after 20 festivals, I have no idea if that's a random number, but you know, <laughs> it's like, okay, good to me. Yeah. but it's just, and to have people reach out that way. And I just got a handwritten, like this four page letter, a handwritten letter from a woman who saw it in Oregon, just, you know, opening up about how it inspired her. And at my last Q and a, there was an artist there. She's a sculptor and she was so moved by it that she was taking notes during the Q and a about the things that inspired the film. And so that part it really feeds me as a performer and as a creator, I guess, as a storyteller. That inspiration that you're giving other people. Yeah. Which and is just, and just feeling their energy saying this is, there's value. I can't, you know, you've, you've moved me in some way. That's what we all want. It doesn't need to be, um, or I won't say that's what we all want. I would say that that's for me as a storyteller, that's the thing that I love. I love the thought of another human being being a little bit different after seeing something that I've made or watching something that I do or reading something that I wrote. They don't have to be, um, transformed and it doesn't have to be a sort of heavy metamorphosis. It could just be that they're light, more lighthearted or, they have, you know, ideally with this film, a huge part of this film is about growing empathy. There's, it's, I think empathy is such an underrated um, attribute in our culture and it's really incredibly courageous. It's like this bold, ferocious, courageous act to empathize with someone who's different from yourself and to use your imagination to sit in their shoes and to, to you know, include them 
in your world vision as a result of that. I think it's a huge and necessary thing. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge part of this film. It's a huge, you know, Liv, the main character, is an outlier. And it's very much about what happens. We, we made, the film is not about why she is the way she is. In fact, there are many different responses to that, but the film is very much about what happens when you step outside of society and, you know, what what, what do we feel as, as society? What do we feel our responsibilities are? And how much can we allow and encompass? And then as the individual, you know, what are you, how much are you willing, how important is it to you to, to defend that or to stand up for it? You know, when is it ego and when is it um, integrity? Those are all questions I was really interested in. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's really interesting in watching the film how a lot of the things that you spoke of with your experience of living as this as a silent person for a period of time, how you could very much see it, and you could see the way that the actors or the the characters responded to her as a human, especially the people who existed in her world already or had some sort of familiarity with her, mm. how just their faces change when they communicate with her because, and just like the whole demeanor, the, the shape of their bodies were so different in communication with her because you, it had to be, I think a, and then B it's just, you wanted to, because you, it, that helped you to be able to feel her. And That's wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> no, but it's just something that I, I noticed, but it's just, it's, it's so interesting how much you can learn when you listen. It's so true. Mm. I know yeah. it really is. I mean, there is also something I do. We all are obviously lovers of language as well. Right. And, uh, uh, podcasts are language based. And of course a lot of theaters language based and there's a real value in it. There's something really, um, there was a wonderful, <laughs> I'm not going to remember his last name, but he's <laughs> this fantastic, uh, very well-known fiddle player from Ireland. And, he said um, that the most beautiful thing, he's played with the best musicians in the world, and he said the most beautiful thing is not the musician hitting the note perfectly and effortlessly and kind of look, making it look effortless after, you know, it's so much work. He said the most beautiful thing is people playing their fiddles in their kitchens and reaching for the note and missing it, but reaching for it, the effort, the, the, you know, and I think that's language for us. I think language is us reaching to say, to, to communicate thought and to communicate feeling and idea and, and also just to connect on a very basic level. You know, so much of what we say is just about, I'm a human, you're a human, we're in the same room, we're okay. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we're better than okay. Those are, I think it's just so cool that we do that, even though there's, you know, the likelihood of ever being able to paint a perfect picture in your imagination, perfect being exactly what's in mine, is so low, right? So we both have these different ideas of what we're talking about, and yet there's something, there's a deeper level of communication that's happening under the language that's really valuable. So really cool. I think it's, yeah, that's it's a cool thing. Really cool. Well, and I mean, they say, I think it's 90% now of communication is nonverbal. So that's really interesting too when you put that on top of like, how much do you really need language to communicate mm. when we, when we, our brains pick up on physical behavior all day long, every day. It mm -hmm. doesn't, sometimes you don't have to hear what a person's saying. You can see it, yeah. you know? So totally. Yeah. That's cool. What's your, what are you working on next? What, what's, well, yes. um, <laughs> we are, it's a couple of things. So we are, um, distributing the film. There's, we're still making choices about that, but um, that's a big thing. That's a big part of kind of what's happening right now in terms of my life and, you know, creation. I have a television show that I wrote that, um, it, I was really fortunate. It won the Tribeca through her lens, uh, lab and grant, and it's called on the outs. And it's very different in terms of tone than the film. It's a really edgy, super dark, uh, comedy. That's, it's a comedy drama hybrid, but it's very sort of, um, it's, you know, it's got edge to it. Like I had my, some of my family members read it and they were like, I'm not sure I get this. And I was like, that's perfect. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, so that's, that's about a woman it's called on the outs and it's about a woman, uh, part native American woman who lives on, um, in the, uh, 
bayou in Louisiana just off of a Choctaw reservation. And she lives inside this cabin and she's agoraphobic. She's afraid of outdoor spaces and crowds. So if she needs to deal with the world, she uses these super rock star like coping mechanisms to kind of manage her, her condition. So her sister will show up with two bottles of Jack Daniels and a big pink motorcycle helmet and proceed to get her completely drunk, put her in the helmet, strap her in a mummy bag and strap her in the car if she needs to go anywhere. And, um, she enters this writing competition because writing is the only thing that gives her full imaginative kind of freedom because she doesn't have physical freedom. And it's a travel writing competition. And so she writes it on her hometown because it's the only place she knows. And because it's so satirical and so witty, it goes viral. And she gets a meeting with the editor and they offer her a regular travel column, not knowing she's agoraphobic. So she moves into a hotel and she steals the stories of the hotel guests to write this travel column. And it's really about her searching for a cure in the middle of all this. But I love That's it so much. So cool. But people who see the film and read the script, they're like, these are so, you know, tonally they're so different. But they're I've found without knowing it that I'm really fascinated with outliers ultimately. Just people who have either made a choice or have found themselves deciding to live sort of outside of the traditional bounds of society for whatever reason and embrace it. Mm -hmm. You know, they aren't necessarily trying to correct that or trying to be accepted. They're actually, they kind of love being outside of, you know, this sort of normal system. So it's been really interesting to find that. And then I have a, another series that's short, a short form series at the moment that's based on my experience of, um, doing audio work actually. And some, uh, um, producing for news crews in conflict zones, which was oh a side goodness. job that I had some actors become waiters and <laughs> that was my side job. That was your job. Yeah. <laughs> wow. oh my I didn't goodness. just do conflict zones. Yeah. I mean, I also did like, you know, which is sort of a conflict zone, but like black Friday, you know, the Friday after oh. Thanksgiving in New Straight. Jersey. Oh which my is total, also, that's a total yeah. conflict zone. What are you talking about? Would, it's a war zone. I wouldn't be is, caught right? dead there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, no. So yeah, so that's that. So I have those two, and then I have another feature film that's sort of in development about my great grandmother. That's a much bigger, much bigger project. Yeah. Um, and then I'm looking at the. I was accepted into the Ryan Murphy Half Foundation. Do you guys know about that? I don't. No. So it's a, oh, it's such a cool thing. So Ryan Murphy, super showrunner, right? Has six shows on the air: American Horror Story, American Crime Story. Um, he did Nip Tuck. He did Glee. He's got the show that that I'm going to be working on is called Pose, and that's shooting here in New York. And it's about the 1980s ball culture, sort of Paris is burning. Um, LGBTQ youth up in in Harlem belonged mm. to these clubs, and they would basically walk. They would do. They would vogue. They would walk and drag. They would walk as stockbrokers, and they would win trophies for this, and it would bring honor to their club. But it wasn't in like a nightclub that they did it. It was in like bingo halls and like town halls. It's really cool. And while they were being kind of empowering themselves that way, um, there was the rise of the kind of obscene wealth. Um, and specifically, Ryan Murphy is is showing the rise of Donald Trump here in New York. So it's the conflict between these two things that are happening a matter of, you know, 20 blocks apart or yeah. 50 blocks apart from each other um, in the show Pose. But he has this foundation because he discovered um, basically two years ago or something, I think he was saying, he made the decision that he wanted 50% of all of the directors and I think crew on his set to be women or people of color or LGBTQ. So he said he realized he needed to start something that would allow him to do that. He had an episode he had hired a woman director for, a female director for, um, called Marsha, Marsha, Marsha on American Horror Story. No, American Crime Story. And she couldn't do it for some reason. She had to pull out. And when he went to go find another female director of television that he felt was right for this, he couldn't find one. He didn't have anybody he knew. And he said, this is on me then, actually. So he started this foundation two years ago where they take in, um, they there's a big application process and you show your work and you apply and you write about why you think you would be a good director television director and why you want to do it. And then they accept, um, a few people each year and those people get to shadow a director on one of his shows Wonderful. and it's a paid position, which never happens with these shadowing positions. Mm -hmm. They're usually mm -hmm. not paid. Mm -hmm. So you do that for six weeks and you basically from beginning to end of the process, you, you have a mentor that's the director and then you're the mentee and you're paid while you're doing this. And then at the end of it, they do this kind of almost like a coming out party for you where they, 
introduce you to agents and reps and producers and people who can employ you in LA. And then they also, if, if things went well, they try to cycle you into his projects. And so the show that I'm going to mentee on is, is pose here in New York. That's wonderful. It's amazing. What an incredible, yeah. What a great program. The fact that he's doing that is incredible because that's what, because that's what it needs, right? That's what the world needs is the realization that there's a need for this a, and realizing how little, we're introducing that into our own lives and then making a change. It's yeah. smart business too. It's really it's smart, smart business. business. And it's yeah. also, and he, it's super cool because it was about his personal story as well as a coming up as a gay man in a very, what he considered to be very macho Hollywood. And so he wanted more of himself on set, more of people like him on set. And then that extended out. But I do think we are just in a time where there has to be, it can't just be a conversation. It has to be about these kind of actions and they have to be major actions because, um, it's just not acceptable anymore. It really isn't like, it's not okay anymore. And I feel like we're, I hope that we're in a tipping point around it. It feels, with everything that's, it feels like it's it changing. Like it is, yeah. Um, you know, we'll see five, 10, 15 years from now, but it, there is definitely, I mean, everything that's been going on the last two months. Well, the so. whole cleaning house. I know, with, and I mean, I it's so, it started with Harvey Weinstein, yeah. but now there's so many people, there's too many to even name. You can't, you can't name them. There was, um, I think it was the times did all their pictures. Oh wow. Like, I don't know if it was with just online. Of, yeah. Maybe yeah. it wasn't the times, but somebody did all their pictures with a list of what had been like, who had been caught and accused and like, that's what, fabulous. I know. I know. It's fantastic. It's that accountability that's really critical. And then that makes room because when those people are pulled out of their, you know, uh, positions of power that they obviously have abused and shouldn't be in to begin with, when they're pulled out, there's a vacuum there and there's space now for new voices and there's space for new, but it's, and it's also ultimately like with what, what Ryan is doing with the Half Foundation, it is also about the more women that are working at top levels, the less we're going to have issues of sexual harassment and sexual abuse. I'm not saying that w- that there's there are no women who have been accused of this and that women are entirely immune to it, but I can almost guarantee that if we have a truly diverse storytelling culture, a huge amount of the abuse of power is going to disappear because it's no longer going to be one-stop shopping, which is what it's been for so long. It's been, you know, straight white men in that position. And there are incredible straight, straight white male allies, but the people who have been, we've had to go to that same store over and over and over again. And so if you get banned from that store, there's no place else else to go. And of course that's what's created the amazing indie film movement and all the rest of it. But you know, this is something where now maybe there's going to be multiple, there's going to be a lot of different places people can go for content. And, and the result of that is going to be that you're no longer held captive by these people who are abusing their positions of power. Well, and seeing the success again of even, even stories like even how frozen did, uh, you know, a Disney movie about two sisters versus, mm. you know, a Prince charming movie and seeing people like Reese Witherspoon who has success with big little lies mm-hmm. and wild. And, you know, you see these women like creating their own production companies and starting to put it out. So I, I really feel like we're like on the, the rise, <laughs> you I know? know, it does feel like that, especially with, as these, and they've been successful, you mm-hmm. know, look at, I mean, big little lies at the Emmys this year. Oh, yeah. and it was uh, an incredible and show. Handmaid's Tale and, and yes. Lady Bird. Yeah. And, uh, I know it's it, wonderful. It's, 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 people are hungry for, for these stories that ha- just haven't either been overlooked or been told by a male gaze versus a female gaze. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, it's, it's really fascinating. It's really, really fascinating. So and we, we deserve it, you know, yeah. so culturally we all deserve it. We deserve to be able to see ourselves on screen and we deserve to be able to, to, to grow that muscle of empathy when we watch movies. Well, that's the biggest know? thing. Yeah. Is empathy towards people who look different than you or come from a different background or different education or, you know, finances or whatever, if you can start putting yourself in those people's shoes, it's, it's, I mean, storytellers heal the world in that way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's a need for it. Yeah, there definitely is. And it has to continue. It has to grow outward. It can't just be about gender either. And that's a huge and very visual and very overdue (laughs) conversation that needed to have happened. You know, Um, well, the conversation's been happening, but the actions are really overdue, but they are starting to happen. And that house cleaning is really empowering. I just feel 
so um, moved by the fact that all of these women are coming out and, and, and the sort of, you know, the hashtag me too campaign has given, they don't feel, I, I hope that they don't feel alone. And I think it's part of the reason that so many women are coming forward and speaking vocally about these people who have been abusers and that are in incredible positions of power and that it continues as long as it continues and it stays in the news this way, they're going to continue to feel supported and not, you yeah. know, victimized or re-victimized. And yeah. not be silent yeah. because it's what we've thought we've had to do for so long and society has reinforced it over and over and over again. Like the fact of that you're always doubted anytime anything happens, it immediately comes to and you. I, I think yeah. I think it's also this fact of you feel like you're the only person this has happened to and that embarrassment of it or whatever and then to realize, oh, this hap- has happened to <laughs> everyone I know and they're speaking up about it. Like I can say, gives you permission to say your story as well absolutely and it's it helps stop stigmatization mm-hmm. because you see because even if you know so like with Weinstein right everybody says we all knew or they all knew you know that the that it was very it was obvious what was happening at least to quite a few people but there was that even for those women knowing it having been warned about it having something happen to them the stigmatization of what that means to go up against somebody who's your employer who holds the keys to the kingdom that most of us as artists want you know we all want to make brilliant films the Weinstein company represented a ton of brilliant films those kind of things are really um reducing that that you're stigmatized in some way because of uh, an abuse that you've suffered is really important. And I think the more images of strong, interesting women coming forward and saying, this happened to me also, I'm not defined by it, but it happened and it shouldn't happen again is really valuable. Great. I agree. That's wonderful. Well, I don't want us to keep you yeah. too long and make you late for your, your, <laughs> your further engagements. Thank you so much for sitting Thank down and yeah, talking with us. It was super fun. Us. It was really fun. Good. Good. I'm so, so glad happy you had your time. You. Yeah. Tell everybody where they can find you online. Sure. Thank you. Um, you can find this, the film, the sounding is at the and we keep it updated as much as possible with where we're screening and what's happening next. And, and as our distribution plans unfold, we'll definitely be having some kind of theatrical and, and VOD and those sort of things that'll all be announced on the site. And there's a newsletter there that people can sign up for it. They will never be inundated because I write the newsletter and I'm way too busy to write more than like maybe three a year. So you'll never get too many of them. Um, and then for myself, I'm at katherineaton.info, but I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all the things. Wonderful. So. We'll Great. put all that information so people can follow you awesome. and Thank yeah. follow you. the movie when it's released. And then yeah. keep, and keep us updated with when you have screenings we'd love to share them with our audience and uh, let them know where they can see this wonderful film that would be so great thank you thank you so much again Catherine. and thank you for listening thanks guys bye